0: helping kids understand what feelings are, understand that they're natural and involuntary. It's just the same as breathing. Like it's not your choice um, to feel these right. feelings, but they come and they also go like clouds in the sky, you know, like, so, so doing a lot of that work is so foundational to, to talking about trauma with our kids.
1: Welcome to the James Trail podcast, From Functional to Flourishing. Today we have Dr. Bonnie Goodwin. Bonnie has a PhD. She's an LCSW and an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma in the School of Social Work. Her focus is on families and children. Her career includes juvenile justice, victim services, child welfare prevention, and clinical services in an adoptive specialized counseling center, which we're going to talk some about. She is the statewide coordinator of Adoption Preservation Services in Oklahoma, and she has been researching and training professionals on foster care and adoption for 20 years. Her research emphasizes adoption permanency post adoption support and improving services for adoptive families part of what is so great about her work is that she is leaning into spaces that are very very innovative in the trauma-informed communities so let's welcome bonnie to the show Hi Bonnie, I'm so excited that you're with us in the studio today. Hello, thank you
0: so much. I'm I'm very honored to to join you in a in a great conversation.
1: Oh my goodness. I'm I'm pumped about it and just seeing your bio and just all the things that you're doing just So amazing. Such amazing work. So one of the things I wanted to ask you before we kind of fully get started here is it says you worked in an adoption specialized counseling center. Can you tell me what that is and what is and what you did there?
0: So I've been able to work in the field of social work with children and families in all different types of circumstances um, for the last 20 years or so. But about 10 years ago, I really honed in on the adoption field and I was working um, in an adoption agency with birth moms um, and adoptive parents, um, but really walking along. As they were making their their voluntarily placement, you know, they were voluntarily relinquishing yeah. and placing their children um, with adoptive parents. And we, the agency that I worked with had been around for a really long time, about 100 wow. years. So the cool thing was in that agency, we were able to have a lot of long-term like lifelong connection with those families. Wow. Yeah, and and they were sharing with us the experiences that they were having throughout their lifetime. And so that really opened our eyes to there's more. <laughs> there's more than just the beginning of adoption. There's more that we need to to really find and develop support for the kids that are growing up but then also the families and including the birth birth family, birth parents who were making those decisions. Gratefully, leadership at that agency opened the door and um, allowed me to work on my clinical license at the same time as I was starting to just kind of develop and understand what that meant. Mm. It was really important to me to to determine what's out there, what is, you know, of all the trainings, of all the different types of mental health treatments, what did what did we need to know? And what did we need to be able to provide that would be the most appropriate and, and best for those families and those um, kids? Wow! And so that's what we did. We uh, dug in pretty deep. I dug in pretty deep. That's actually why I went back to school to get my Ph.D. because I it just it, it opened this whole world of this really huge understanding of these unique characteristics and complexities and and things that are again lifelong so that was the beginning of our we opened a whole nother side to that agency that was focused just on counseling um, very specialized care
1: that's amazing and what's crazy about when that's not true everywhere. I I mean, Mm. there are not enough services, I think we would both agree, for post-adoption, you know, the post-adoption season for parents or caregivers. And, uh, yeah, so amazing that you guys saw that and said, let's jump in, and it's probably very busy, (laughs) if I had to guess.
0: I had, I think at one point I had about 65 cases on my caseload. Oh, my uh, which was not doable long term. But, but sure. that definitely, you know, that's how you grow is right. noticing the need. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely.
1: And then it says also that you are the statewide coordinator of a, adoption uh, preservation services. Is that different than being involved in that counseling center? And, and what do you yeah. do with that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that is actually a part of a, a research contract that I that I hold with the University of Oklahoma, nice. and the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. Um, DHS has contracted with me to um, really do a big kind of a bird's eye view, um, grow, uh, strengthen, and grow the post adoption support that's available in Oklahoma. So that's it's a big order tall order um and you know it's a kind of a i keep telling everybody it's a 10-year strategic plan because you you build things you know you build things over time you can't you can't create an entire system of support overnight um but that's that's the goal is what do we need and really looking at the spectrum of need where um it's you know a lot of our adoptive families and our kiddos are doing doing great they're doing they're solid, you know and um, for time and then there might have some challenging times, but sure. then it, it comes back to stability. So a lot of that is providing the opportunity just to to meet each other and to to find each other to have that support of each other um, and then and then it goes all the way up to really specialized um, and kind of even crisis level care where we've got, we do have kids who've been adopted from Oklahoma child welfare and then five, six, seven years down the road. Um, unfortunately we have kids who are going back into foster care because of the emotional behavioral challenges and parents feeling like they're failing and not knowing what to do. Um, there's a whole lot of variables that go into, into those situations. Um, but, but the goal is to, to hit that whole spectrum where it's this, you know, one end where we're just trying to give lots of support and, and training and awareness out there, all the way to some really targeted, specific crisis response. Um, so we're in the process <laughs> of building, building something like that.
1: Wow. Okay. So you have your personal spa and like bonbons and you're just like sitting there chilling all day long. It sounds like, right? <laughs> that's right. I don't, know that's how, right. <laughs> I don't know how you're fitting it all in, but um, I bow to the superwoman. So that sounds oh. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, funny. Uh, so another thing that is, you know, coming up as you're talking is, you know, you mentioned helping adoptive families and foster families find each other you know, adopting and fostering can be very isolating. And so I love that that is one of the things that, you know, you've been involved in. And for that reason, I love the Replanted Conference and the reconference Mm. that we just had in Kansas City. Mm. I was just privileged to be a part of in Kansas City in early February. And, um, yes, there's content at those conferences. I'm sure you do the same thing. Of course, there's content, expertise, all those kinds of things that you offer. But a huge piece of it is just bringing people together. And yeah. I've said this before, you know, the reason that we started James Trail is it's a resource we wish we had had, yeah, you know, in that season. Um, and frankly, mm-hmm. it's a resource we all still need and in, in whatever yeah. season we are. And, uh, but it, it, of course, you know, the need for community is far beyond adoption and foster care, right? It's, yep,
0: absolutely. And, and
1: even, you know, birth families and all of that. It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, all of us who have experienced hard things. We need each other. Right. Absolutely. And so yeah. I love that that's just like core to your work and everything that you're doing. Um, it's just amazing. Okay. Before we get any further, uh, which would be, I have so many thoughts going through my head right now. But one question we like to ask everyone is, if you had a superpower today, in this season, you could pick it, magically it would appear to you, uh, what would you choose?
0: Well, there are definitely many things um, that I wish I could do. <laughs> but the one that I've always gone back to my whole life is that I wish that I could fly.
1: Oh, that's because
0: a good one. Right. Like I I feel like it would just give me so much freedom, but then also it, it would feel so empowering. (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine like being out, you know, flying over, seeing people. In fact, I've had so many dreams like that where I am flying over houses and like just come down and have a conversation with, I don't know. I would just love to have that ability to, to fly.
1: That's beautiful. And then you wake up and you're like, (laughs) dang it.
0: Still grounded.
1: I guess I'm not (laughs) flying today. (laughs) Not today. (laughs) Not today. Not so much today. Uh, Okay, so sometimes I have an answer for this and sometimes I don't. And it usually changes because you're right. There's so many (laughs) superpowers I'd love to have. You know what came to mind today? This is crazy. Uh, Is I, I would love to be able to look like a million bucks in like a suit or like a pencil skirt or whatever, <laughs> but it's all elastic. Like all of it, like I can't feel it. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: It's just like... like you're in yoga pants all the time, but looking good. With a pencil skirt,
1: feels like yoga pants. That's it. You said it. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. sounds amazing. Right? Uh-huh. But I'm also with you on the flying. Um, I was on a plane recently, <laughs> and I got the window seat, which was pretty awesome. And nice. I... Do you do that too? Because you, you love to like the concept of oh, yeah. you look out the window and you're mm-hmm. like,
0: oh my gosh,
1: look at that. It's good stuff, <laughs> it's, right? It's good stuff.
0: It is. I agree. All
1: right. So you work with children and adults, and mm-hmm. we know, you know, just from understanding more and more about trauma over the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's so many different ways that we can approach folks uh, with trauma informed practices. And so, how is approaching children versus adult different when you are caring coming alongside uh, folks and you're coming alongside families? How do we approach um, kids differently than we do adults?
0: Such a great question. Um, man, I think starting with adults, I think when you mature and your and your brain is is fully developed, you have more of the capacity to be able to find the words. To express what you're feeling. With our kids, though, it's very hard. You know? Um, Some of our kids have some of our kids have a lot of words. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) as do
1: adults. (laughs) 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 True. Um,
0: But but to be able to find the words to well, and even going back farther than that, to identify what the feeling is that I'm feeling is such a, it's it's a process. Like it's not something where you just automatically know I'm feeling mad or I'm feeling sad right now. Sometimes those get confused, right? So with kids, it really takes some time to to go to do. To pull back a little bit and give some of that context and, and spend some time talking about what feelings are. How do you feel them in your body? It's one of my favorite things to do with kids, right? When you feel mad, where do you feel that physically in your body? So helping them, helping kids understand what feelings are, understand that they're natural and involuntary. It's just the same as breathing. Like it's not your choice um, to feel these feelings, but they come and they also go like clouds in the sky, you know, like, so, so doing a lot of that work is so foundational to, to talking about trauma with our kids. And then one of my favorite things with kids is, um, again, some, some of our kids have good words and, you know, are able to really find, especially as they're um, aging and and into adolescence, um, journaling, talking, sharing your story can be powerful. But then some of our kids don't, aren't yet there and so right. finding other ways to express um and tell their story understand their story art one of my favorite things mm, to to ask is um is a the um, the feelings check in you know like those yeah. charts of like how do I feel today yeah I would always shift it a little bit to what color do you feel today oh I love um, that Right? Cause it, it just it changes it. It makes it a little more approachable, I think, mm. than and than being able to identify an actual feeling because some feelings do have uh too much stigma, uh, weak. You know, a lot of kids feel they're feeling weak if they admit that they're sad or you know, so color um That's can great. be a really cool place to start with kids. Um and then a lot of it too is movement, like your body. Connecting feelings to your body, but then also getting up and doing physical things in, in the processing, in the storytelling, um, you know, moving your body, helping your body feel powerful, because most of the time trauma is a situation where you didn't have power, um, right? You didn't have control. You didn't get to choose, and right. so moving your body in the midst of talking about or remembering some of those things can can shift that a little bit and and give a little bit of power back
1: okay so say i'm a kid just use your vast (laughs) imagination (laughs) just pretend i'm a kid and i say what if i said where are you feeling stress or whatever the question is in your body what if i said i'm feeling in my i'm feeling in my stomach Mm. well how how would you respond then to something like that
0: Yeah, me too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) Power to you. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think that that's really one of the most powerful moments when kids can actually connect something other than I feel it in my heart. You Mm. know, because that's what we always think. That's what we're taught is like you feel things in your heart. And and once they're able to connect that actually I feel – Things in my stomach. I feel headaches. I feel it in my back. Mm. Then you can start talking about how your your body is connected to your emotions, and and the stomach is such a such a center. Um, and I love to talk to kids about how we say a lot of phrases like um, "gut punched" or you know right. we have a lot of things that are talking about connecting your gut because there's so many more neurotransmitters in your gut than in your brain um wow. so so yeah yeah me too it makes a lot of sense your your body's working right
1: yeah and i love that sometimes that's you know what's needed is validation absolutely that you know oh not necessarily which you know this could be true also but not necessarily, uh, oh, it's in your gut? Well, let me tell you the psychoanalysis uh, you know, right. of that, right? It's just even just right. looking them in the eye and saying, buddy, me too. Like, this yeah. is an icky, icky moment, right? You know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. I-, I just love that. Do you do like work with sand trays and stuff like that? Do you do that work?
0: I have not. I've, uh, I've studied a lot about it. I haven't been able to to practice it myself, but I think it's fascinating
1: work. <laughs> I Absolutely love it. Absolutely fascinating work. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's another way I, I love it goes along with like, instead of how do you feel with feelings? How what color are you today? It's it's something that it's play oriented. Um, For, for our listeners. Uh, it's a it's a modality to come along kids uh, who have experienced trauma. And I've, Frankly, I've seen it work with adults as well. Oh, but absolutely. There's, there's a tray of sand, literally a tray of sand in the therapist's office. And there's shelves of a thousand different figures. And um, depending on the goal of therapy that day, the child or perhaps the, the therapist, but usually the child or mm-hmm. um, the the person in therapy will pick, you know, figurines and things from the shelf and then it's used in therapy as a way to explain their feelings and what's going on it's just yeah it's it's really really brilliant i agree yeah i just feel like there's so many different directions we could go one thing (laughs) i want to ask you though is how have you seen the role of race and ethnicity play out in your practice
0: yeah man such a a critical piece for um, families, I think, to have a good understanding walking in to adoption and foster care. yes um, when when they are um, entering into a relationship with a child who is from a different cultural background, a different race, especially if their skin is a different color. So sure. uh, you know, there's there's layers to it. I think um, already, our adopted and our, our adopted kids and our kids in foster care already are having some uh, some challenges coming to them when they're trying to figure out their own story. Um, what happened to me? Why why did why were my parents not able to to keep me? You know, there's there's questions that they have to to process through and have to have a safe place to ask. Um, and so there's this identity formation that's, that's happening and this understanding of my own story and why. And then when you have a cultural and a racial difference on top of it, then it, it adds another layer to that. Absolutely. Um, who am I now? You know, we know that adolescents have to reflect off of um, the caregivers in their life and other people in their life to to determine who am I. It's like a mirror process. So, when we when parents look different than the child, then it it's it's just it's a more complex process of. Who do I look like? Um, What does that mean for me? You know, I've heard, um, working with some of my transracially adopted kiddos, uh, I've heard several of them talk about, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't feel Mm. like I fit anywhere because I don't look like my adoptive family and I can't hide, you know, like when we go out in public, everybody knows that I'm adopted, and they ask mm. me those questions. And, um, you know, some of those are very upsetting questions. Sure. Um, so th- there's, it's harder to hide. But then it's also, uh, when I, connect with, you know, others of my racial background, then I don't necessarily fit there either. Mm. Um, because I'm, I don't feel accepted. And so who, who, who do I belong to and what does that mean about me? And so it, it's just, it's complex. There's, um, some really unique aspects that we, um, as parents and also as professionals walking alongside our kids who are trying to process all of that on top of, you know, developing relationships, on top of hormones, <laughs> all the stuff that oh our kids gosh, have to do, totally. <laughs> Right. then we have to have a good, solid understanding and strategies to really help walk through some of those questions and hold space, be a safe container for the processing of what all that means you know because and that's where we know that grieving brings up so many emotions that don't really make sense like confusion and anger and you know all the all that stuff comes up and if we're not feeling comfortable and prepared that all of those things might come up in this process then we don't know how to help and support so right i think there's just there's just a lot of extra things for our kids to process through
1: there sure are. And I know that's been a process. So we have five kids, four of which are adopted and the four that were adopted are all, you know, it's all transracial, um, interracial, whatever adopted. And yeah. um, they, they've all had their journey with that. Um, Jordan, uh, our second kiddo, uh, you know, talked about some of that in the podcast that we did a couple of episodes yeah. ago. And mm. it, it I mean, it was a process for him. It's a process for our girls. We have three girls that are Latina, and uh, we made it extra hard on them by living cross-culturally as well. We lived in Hawaii <laughs> for a time. We lived in Mexico for a time. So wow. um, we're just like adding all the layers, but um, but I do remember something that was a, a really poignant moment for me anyway So, before we adopted the girls, we just had the boys. And so we have our oldest, who's our only biological kid, and my husband's white. And so Griffin is, you know, Caucasian. And then we had Jordan, and Jordan's African American. So, you know, uh, so Griffin's like two, and Jordan's like one, or like they're little, like two and three, something like that. We were in the car and we were driving along, and Griffin says, hey, Jordan, look, that man is brown like you. And it was somewhere between like this amazing moment where like, I think for the first time, little Griffin realized that there there are differences in how we look. And it reminded me as a parent, just how important my role is in saying and responding well in that moment, which I don't Yeah, I I hope I did, but you know, saying (laughs) something to the effect of "That's right, that's right. Look, that man's brown like you, Jordan. A beautiful chocolate brown. Look at you. You know, Mm. kind of making it um, not something we don't talk about. Like, let's talk about this. Let's not make this subject something that is untouchable or taboo in our house. Like, let's talk about it. And so, anyway, yeah, it's been a process at our house. That's for sure. It's a process for. For kids, for parents, and so yeah, mm-hmm. I love that you are in tune with that and uh, want to walk with with folks through that. And well, and and thank you for
0: for saying what you did uh, as a parent of I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to lean into it. You know, because I think a lot of times some parents are really s- hesitant and anxious of. You know, we don't want to. We don't want to talk about difference. We don't want to make our child feel more isolated, or you know, highlight that. But but really, we know that that makes it even more isolating. You know, to not right. be able to talk
1: about it. Right. So, and I'm I think finding that was a great response. Of, well, I hope so. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, I think some of that paradigm of I want to protect my kid is is comes from the generational stuff. You know, I think there are generations older than than myself and perhaps even older than my grandparents that, you know, their mindset was, well, it'll protect them if we Mm -hmm. handle things a certain way or if we don't tell them they're adopted or, you know, stuff like that. Right. And we've, you know, in the last 30 years or so, you know, come much more into the, no, we need to embrace all of these things and talk about all these things. So I'm just really thankful to be in the generation that is starting to get that, you know, me too. I, me too. <laughs> I know, right. I know that I, you know, did plenty of things, but also, you know, I'm thankful to have, you know, the kind of generational environment where I can be like, I actually know that we're going to do it differently, you know? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. yeah. So thank you for sharing that. So, we You touched on this when you were talking about some of your intro and, and what you do and this counseling center mm-hmm. that was developed. So I'm really passionate about, and I know you are as well, about talking about things and and needs and resources for parents and caregivers and teachers, frankly, and everyone in the kiddo's mm-hmm. world after adoption. Our experience... Mm-hmm. And I see this for for many of our friends and uh, acquaintances, coworkers, people that we meet who are adoptive families and and are in the lives of adoptive kids is, uh, you know, the the church many times or the community are absolutely rallied during the adoption process Mm -hmm. All the paperwork, all the interviews and the home studies and all those things. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. We're on board. We're praying for you and all that stuff. And Absolutely, Mm -hmm. they are. That's 100% accurate. Right. And then the kiddo comes home and and maybe there's an airport moment or a big party or a baby, not a baby shower, but like an adoption shower or whatever.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: then it's kind of like, okay, so you guys have got it. That's okay. Just call me. (laughs) If you need something, just call. And that is literally the opposite of what is needed so many times Mm -hmm. in adoptive Mm -hmm. families. That is the moment where we really need people to press in. We really need someone to show up at our door with a pot of spaghetti. We really need people Mm -hmm. to, to, if you're a person of faith, to lean in in prayer. Uh, We really need wise counsel and tons of grace when we show up at church and you know all the things. And so yeah, what are the angles of that that you are passionate about that that you have you know maybe seen that are unique or you know could be of interest to to our listeners the after adoption process?
0: Yeah. Oh there's so much. Right? <laughs> there's so much in all of that. I think one thing that we've learned through, through research, um, looking at the stability, you know, looking at characteristics or factors that are associated with adoption breakdown. So whenever things like I was mentioning earlier, um, when some of our kiddos do, um, you know, actually end up, uh, entering foster care after some time after being adopted. Um, something that we've learned is that the risk for that breakdown actually increases over time, mm. which doesn't feel naturally right, right, right? Like you you would think that the hardest time is when they first join the home and everyone's getting to know each other and everything's new. And then over time, everyone just gets closer and closer.
1: But there's um, a honeymoon. Yes. Or there can yes, be. There absolutely. can be a honeymoon. And so in, mm-hmm. in line with what you're saying, there's there's a lot of times there's this like moment of like, oh wow and everyone's on their best behavior but the reality then comes sorry go ahead
0: right right no that's exactly exactly what I'm what I'm talking about of just that um because of that trauma piece right of when I have had experiences where what I thought was forever was no longer there then when I'm told this is forever and I'm coming to connect and learn and and, you know, begin a relationship, I'm not able to fully trust that sure. right away. It takes it takes a lot of time to be able to really believe that this is gonna be something that that is an on a long term thing. Sure. Plus I'm still growing, you know? Right. So every year my brain sees my history and sees my life in a different lens. Right. It's like I'm putting new glasses on every year and trying to understand everything that I've been through um, with different perspective and more maturing, um, maturing brain, which is really why um, what, we, what we think of like it's about two years increase the risk increases a little bit but five years later the risk is even higher wow. but the highest risk of adoption breakdown is at 10 years post-finalization
1: wow. i did not know that yeah
0: and it makes sense though right? right like if you think of a kiddo who was adopted at age three 10 years later is 13. Right. it's it's preteen that's the that's the hard. that's that's puberty right. that's identity formation it's all those complexities that we were talking about earlier so for the church, <laughs> I I think you're right. I think the church does an amazing job at celebrating, um, at supporting at the beginning and saying, "Man, we're here for you, and we're so excited for you." And also, maybe sometimes a little bit of "You are a saint," <laughs> yes. so oh, you know, gosh. like right, like putting a little bit of uh, putting adoptive parents on a pedestal mm. that actually may feel good for a second but then it actually is a lot of pressure it, it um, is. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure to to be seen that way so as the child grows if and there's gonna be just because every kid as they grow have you know teenage years are hard everyone knows right. that and then you add on all trauma processing it and all these things then things get even can be even harder and like you said, the church has kind of been like, "All right, you're doing good," um, not really knowing or even having the resources or tools to know how to help when things are ongoing and harder. Um, but then also, I've I've heard parents talk about because they were put on a pedestal before. Now I feel really ashamed, right? And like I don't isolated like I don't know who to talk to because I don't want to disappoint everybody I don't want to fall from that pedestal because that's that's absolutely embarrassing and but I feel like I'm failing and I don't know how to find support in that you know so I think if if our church can really understand the importance of not doing that whole you know uh, pedestal issue at the beginning a love and a support and a celebration, but then also a commitment. It's just the same type of commitment as what we're doing inside that uh, th- inside that family. If the church can be that outside commitment to the parent and the child for the long haul, right. you know, of like, we're here and and we're not going to judge you. We're not gonna judge your kid. We're not going to tell you or blame you as a parent for whenever... Your kiddos having a hard time, and you know, gets a gets upset in church. <laughs>
1: right, right. And I, I'm so grateful that you're bringing this up. I was uh, I had the privilege of presenting a, a, a workshop at one of these conferences, and so I'm, I'm standing in front of a, a group of all adoptive and foster families, and you know, I said something to the effect of. You know, a friend of mine was telling me a story about being at church, and and for our listeners that are not a part of church, I think you know community is another word that could fill that space. You know, your neighbors, yeah, yeah. You, you know, school parents, PTA, whatever. Um. So, but someone had come up to them and said, said, and we almost we've all heard this some or something like this. You guys are such a blessing. You're doing so. I could never <laughs> do that. And there was this collective moan across the entire audience because we all we all want to say we don't but we want to say if you could just see the challenges in my home right now, like you would not say mm-hmm. that about me, you know? And so we're somewhere between like, thank you. I'm literally in the foyer of a church right now. So I really can't get into it. But you know, or I'm at the grocery store right now or I'm at the PTA meeting right now. It's just really tough space yeah. to to be in. Yeah. And Uh, I know, you know, a little bit about like the fact that you are, you know, in church life and church is a part of your life. What are some ways that our listeners in terms of being the church or being the community, uh, being, you know, the neighbor, how can the community, how can we as the community come alongside not only adoptive and foster families, but like families that are experiencing trauma in other ways as well? Mm -hmm. What are some ways we can come yeah. alongside that are not putting on a pedestal, but uplifting instead?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of the things we've talked about, um, validating, right. coming alongside and giving that safe space to say the hard things. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned with walking alongside several adoptive parents is sometimes they need the chance to say, I think I made a mistake, mm. <laughs> you know, um, This isn't going the way that I thought it would. Um, And I'm really sad about that, or I'm really grieving that, that I thought I was going to be this way, or I thought my kid would love me this way. And it's not working. It's not happening that way. And I think a lot of when our community and our friends and our family can come and not have judgment in that moment and make it a really safe place to say, I don't think this is what I was supposed to do and I don't know how to do it anymore, then that's okay. You know, like it's, it's okay. Like I I think every adoptive parent might've thought that at one point or another, and that's okay. And so now we're here, let me come alongside you. Let me, let me give you some, a break. Let me uh, take the kiddos for a weekend and give you a break so you can take some, you know, much needed naps. Um, like you said, bring a pot of spaghetti over, even whenever it's not asked for, even whenever they're not saying, sure. "I need help." It's you know, let me do this for you because I just I I want to I want to help you, I want to connect with you, I want to serve you, um, and then yeah, I think remembering what we were talking about earlier of that, it's it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong process. It's not just the adoption; it's forever.
1: Absolutely, and there may be some of our listeners that are like, "That sounds great." guys but what 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 is this community you're talking about people that are feeling Mm. really really isolated and so for our listeners that are experiencing that i would really want to say there's there's we as james cheryl we want to be a resource for you and so you know lean in to our social media to these podcasts to the blogs Mm -hmm. that we're sending out but also there are resources in many, many areas of our our nation. If you if you live anywhere near a city and some rural as well, and so if you're specifically curious about your community and what's available in your community, reach out to us at contact at jamestrail.org, and say hey, I live in Kansas City, I live in Nashville, and we want to come alongside you and help you to find some of those local resources so that you can realize you are not the only one and that none of us have it together and we're all just needing each other and we're needing to be in community together. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Right? It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I know that you are, I just have a couple more questions, but I know that you are passionate about adult adoptees and serving and coming alongside folks that, are our adoptees in in whatever stage of life and i understand Mm -hmm. that uh your mother-in-law who has now passed was an adoptee and yeah can you speak a little bit to the process as an adult adoptee even into midlife and beyond
0: yeah yeah for sure so um Again, just like the thought process of being there in the long term for for our families, um, it's a it's a long it's a lifelong adoption is a lifelong thing. When you've been adopted, it's a part of your story forever. And I think um, listening and asking questions of my mother in law, um, she had a wonderful adoption experience. Her parents were. Uh, amazing people. Um, she felt very loved, but but in the midst of that, I could I I could hear and I could see a constant uh, feeling of rejection and abandonment that she just carried with her um she was she was born in the 40s and in that time the the belief of best practice of adoption was to not tell anything about their biological history or story, which we know now is actually not the best at all but um, so she since she didn't have any of that information, she, as all adoptees do, you you create the story because you have to have a, a full picture to be able to process and figure out who am I. So she created a story um, in her head of, of that she was the youngest of a line of kiddos and was not pretty enough and cried too much. Oh my and goodness. that was why she believed that she was Uh, placed for adoption and she carried that with her you know um, into into every major milestone of her life Um, again very loved very connected um, many good things for her in her life because of her adoptive home and 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 her faith and things that she held on to as an adult but there was that there was always that um, just that that thread in her life you know and and so seeing that and feeling that alongside her um, has really led me to dig into that and want to want to understand what are some ways that our adoptees when they when they're 25 when they're 35 when they're 60 and and the you know the aging developmental process at that time of what we're doing is looking back on our lives and understanding you know where have I been and what have I done. Um, that's it's it's a critical time for them um, to be able to put some of those pieces together too Um, and and some of the best supports I think is having each other having other people who have had a story like that to be able to 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 bounce off some of those feelings and different questions that might come up and and that feeling of, I thought I was over this or I thought I was okay with this, but I'm feeling it again.
1: Once again, it's about community, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Knowing that it's it's not just you. Um, and then also having those times when I think it's the same as grieving. Uh, any When we lose someone to death, it's uh, adoption, Uh, grief is, is a little more complex because it's more ambiguous of, I didn't really lose them to death, but I don't know where they are, Mm. (laughs) you know, and things like that. And then one other piece of that is some of our adult adoptees have had the opportunity to reunify with biological family, um, which can be a very healing process, um, and can fill in some of those gaps and the puzzles. But then, um, some, some don't have that opportunity so that, you know, um, grieving that loss of opportunity and then some of our adult adoptees have had that for a time but then feel a um, refreshing of that grief whenever you know those uh, adoptive parents pass away and then biological parents pass away you know like some of that is more um again I keep using that word but it's it's the best word for it it just is really complex um processing through what all of that means and all those different major milestones of life.
1: Well, I love that you are leaning in, in, in this world, in this, you know, trauma informed world, but also the, the adoption of foster piece in in ways that we wish it weren't so innovative. We wish it were intuitive and everybody were doing this, but <laughs> you're really leaning in and like the after adoption pieces and the adult adoptee mm. pieces, which is so beautiful. You're, expertise is vast and it is mm, such a, it's been such kind. a pleasure to have you today. I have one Thank more question you. for you. Okay. Where are you seeing beauty in this season of your life?
0: Mm. That's funny. Cause it really is exactly what we were just talking about. I've had the opportunity to, to interview and sit down and hear stories from adult adoptees lately. And that uh, it just, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna cry it's just it's so beautiful that that's beauty you know even in the midst of some of the the sharing of pain sharing of grief um, sitting in that space it feels very sacred and and care and being that container you know to to listen to someone's story and how they're processing it and how they're understanding who they are um, is is a beautiful experience so I'm grateful grateful for that honor wow
1: that really is so beautiful, and as a person of faith, you're, you're you know I, I can absolutely amen the the sacredness to that because yeah. we know that in sharing our stories in, in safe spaces that God can use that you know to heal us yeah. and to bring to move that needle yeah. closer to mental health and closer towards you know the healing you know in the healing process so mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. I am Thank so you. grateful to have met you, and to have you as a part of, uh, you know, this this way of connecting with our listeners and this way of connecting content to people. And I know it's going to resonate with so many people. And so just really grateful for you.
0: Grateful for you and everything James Trail is providing for people. And it's very cool.
1: Oh well, it's it takes all of us. Joining hands, right? So you are very much a part of that today. So we appreciate you and hope that you have an amazing rest of your day. And to our listeners, we will see you on the trail. We have an amazing team here at James Trail. And our podcast is produced by Zach Lucero and marketing and copying by Liz Ramsdell. For more information, please check out our website at jamestrail.org guys don't forget to subscribe rate and review it makes a huge difference on where our podcast goes who hears it and make sure and share the podcast with the people that you think would be of, of value to of impact for thanks guys